We, uh, we have the treat this morning of having one of our ministry residents or interns um, preach. Billy Berglund has been working with our high school and middle school group for the past year. He's a second year student at Denver Seminary. He's a gifted communicator of God's word. And um, I am so excited personally to hear from him this morning and from God through him. And I'm excited for us as a body too. Would you join me in praying uh, for us and for Billy as we receive God's word together this morning. Father, thank you for um, the truth of what we've just sung, that there is power in your scriptures. And Father, as we engage with you this morning, would you open our eyes, would you open our hearts, that we might see Jesus, that we might be transformed by seeing him and drawn more into your heart and your passion for your world. Lord, thank you. Well, we uh, lift Billy up to you this morning and are so grateful uh, for the life that you've given him and the heart for you. And Lord, may that come through this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks. Well, good morning, South Fellowship. It is, uh, <laughs> it's great to see all of you here today. Uh, you must not have heard that the youth ministry intern was speaking. You might have rethought that camping trip that you were planning for Labor Day weekend. Uh, but I'm really glad to be here. I'm glad that you're here. My wife and I, we moved to Denver, Colorado in August of 2015. And in August, this past August, we celebrated our two-year wedding anniversary. And uh, yes, it's been a great journey. We've moved a few times. We've had some crazy adventures. And two years is just long enough for me to become familiar with the look I don't know if you've ever experienced the look, if you have a spouse or you're a student, or maybe you've, uh, your parent has given you the look, but the look, the look uh, communicates so much without saying anything. It's that look of, you're in big trouble, and when we get home, you are gonna deal, we're going to deal with this later. And so I've gotten that look many, many times, uh, mostly because I bring it upon myself. And uh, so one specific instance that this took place... Uh, my wife, she hates getting shots. She hates having to go to the pharmacist or the doctor and to get shots. And so as the loving and caring husband in the fall of the first year we'd been married, I said, hey, Hannah, let's go get our flu shot. She was going to be student teaching. So she kind of grudgingly went with me and we went to Walgreens. We, we get to the, do our little paperwork and go back into this little room, probably the size of this stage. And there's me, the pharmacist, and my wife, Hannah. And so we're sitting there and I can be a little bit of a prankster. And so the, the, I go up first, and the shot gets put in my arm, and I wince like I had literally just been shot in the arm. And she was not amused, but then it was her turn. And so she gets up there, and uh, she gets ready, and the, the pharmacist kind of unsheaths this huge shot to put in her arm, and she starts to wince. And purely accidentally, I, I take a step back, and I shut the lights off in this little room, and it is pitch dark. Hannah screams, the pharmacist yells. I just turn frantically and try to flip on the switch, uh, only to be greeted by the look. And so it was not, not a good day in Billy's marriage. Um, but uh, the truth is, you know, my wife hates getting shots, but she would admit that they're, that they're good for her. We don't always like what's good for us. And uh, I'd like to take full credit that she did not get the flu that year. And uh, so just put that on record, but I'm similar to Hannah. I hate going to the doctor. They stick that piece of wood down your throat and you try not to choke. And they squeeze your arm until it almost falls off. 
They get the blood pressure test, and they poke you in places you haven't been poked since your last visit to the doctor. And uh, it's, it's torture, but we admit, we admit to ourselves that those things are good for us. It's good for us to go to doctors, and we're grateful that there are doctors who can heal us, who can give us treatment if something is wrong, and to catch something before it gets super wrong. And so, in a sense, we need this checkup before we can go back to our, day, our daily lives and improve our quality of living. And so today, I just want us to do that with our hearts. Uh, we kind of gather in a time of transitions. Uh, pretty soon, these slides can no longer say summer, because tomorrow is officially the first day of fall. And I know for a lot of us, this has practically already taken place, going back to school, vacations ending, and a variety of different things that are kind of have a new rhythm now. Football is starting, and there's kind of a new, a new rhythm that we're adjusting to. And so we get this little chance in Labor Day. We get a day off tomorrow where we can kind of take a deep breath and just kind of reassess how we are doing. When's the last time that you did that? You really just checked yourself and said, how am I really doing in my heart? I know for me that's not supernatural. I get going really fast and keep going, and I don't really take time to just reflect on how I'm doing. And so I've titled today's message, Heart Check. The heart is so crucial for our functioning, not just physically, but in our emotions and our will and how we function in our daily lives. And so today we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke. If you turn there with me, it's one of the uh, four gospel accounts where they cover the life of Jesus. And each gospel writer kind of focused his message on a little bit of a different, kind of different angle to, for the specific purpose that he was writing and the specific audience that he's writing to. And Luke, he writes with a specific purpose. Uh, he likes to focus on the teachings of Jesus that are essential for salvation. And it, the gospel is for all people. He says in Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And so today we're going to be in Luke 8, 4 through 15. And as you turn there, uh, you can see at the beginning of 8, 1 through 3, Jesus is in his public ministry. He's going around proclaiming the good news of Jesus, proclaiming that he has come in the kingdom of God or the reign of God is here. And he's traveling around specifically in this story with his 12 disciples and three women. And it's interesting that these women are included. They were not uh, genuinely held to as high a status in society. And this woman, one of them had been healed from, from demons, and another was a rich uh, who had been connections to the palace. So there's this wide range of women traveling with Jesus. And that kind of sets the stage as he's traveling, and he's going to be teaching to a large crowd with a varied amount of hearers. And those hearers, as, as he has been going about teaching his word, they've kind of had a mixed response. Some people uh, that maybe you wouldn't expect were accepting and believing his message, and some that you maybe would expect that they would be accepting his message were kind of rejecting him, and there was this tension there. And so we see in Luke 8, 4 through 7, we read together. And when a crowd was gathering and people came from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away, because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And so what Jesus is doing is he's uh, connecting with his audience. This society was rooted in agriculture, and this would have been readily understood by this audience. It would have been similar to us today talking about like the Broncos and 
different kinds of turf, maybe deflated football, something that would have connected with his audience. And so Jesus is speaking in a parable. He loved to teach in parables. These are kind of comparisons or illustrations used to teach spiritual truths and moral principles. And uh, interestingly, they were out of ordinary life, so the people would kind of connect with them, but they weren't always fully understood. It kind of it took some wrestling to kind of really unpack what exactly Jesus was teaching. And so as we approach this text, as 21st century hearers, we kind of wonder, what is Jesus exactly saying? The farming metaphor does not connect as much with us, unless you grew up in Nebraska, which is a great state just to the east of here, if you've ever visited. But we notice in the story, we have a, a presence of a sower, seed, and soils. And so this sower, which would be a farmer, sowing was one of his jobs, he would go around with this bag and he would, he would cast the seed. And he wouldn't be specifically worried about where this seed would fall, but he would cast it wide. It'd be kind of late October, early December. And as we read through, we notice these prepositions. We see the seed fell along the path, it fell on the rock, among the thorns. But only one seed fall, uh, reaches its goal of falling into the good soil, and as a result, it grew and yielded a hundredfold, which is a huge crop for this time. You, the average would be about five to 15, so a hundredfold was huge. And then Jesus said, in, in verse uh, eight, he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Saying you don't just, you want to really focus on what I'm saying. You're not just going to want to let this come in and go out. You're really going to focus and really dig deep to what I'm saying. In essence, Jesus is kind of saying, would you look up at me for a second? And uh, one scholar, he kind of likens, uh, I think, yeah. So he was, uh, <laughs> he likens this parable to kind of, likens parables in general to kind of like a modern political cartoon. Uh, they may kind of please or amuse you. It might kind of be fun to look at, but if that's all it does, it fails its purpose. There's a much deeper meaning in that, and that's exactly what this parable is like. Jesus is saying, you're going to have to wrestle with this to understand. And also we see the first instance of him saying, he who has ears to hear. And so this hearing is going to be a big theme into this, into this message. And so if you're a little confused right now on exactly what we're supposed to get out of this you're in good company because Jesus' disciples could see and touch him and be right with him, and they don't even understand what he said. We continue the story in Luke 8, 9, and 10. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. So when, as Jesus responds here, he's giving a description of this parable, but also parables on the whole. He's describing kind of what's going on here, and he quotes from Isaiah 6. And what he's doing is he's saying that those who are believing in my message, this truth is being revealed to them. They are getting more understanding. And those whose hearts are hard and they're not responding well, they're not accepting his message, they will not understand. He's presenting a... Uh, He's kind of talking about what these secrets are. And these secrets are, only can be understood by divine revelation. And so Jesus is coming and he's, he's explaining, he's revealing it. But there's a mixed response kind of in his message. People are not believing what, they said, what he has said. And so he's not expressing a desire that some would come not to know him. He even said, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. But he's merely expressing more of a reality that there are some, that he's seeing this Isaiah 6 fulfilled again in his day, that there are some 
who are not accepting his message. And this happens today, does it not? And why is it that we can hear the same thing, but our responses are so different? How do we hear what we are supposed to hear? Because this soil in this story, it, it corresponds to the condition of our heart, how our heart is doing. And there are four of these soils that Jesus is going to unpack for us. And as we do so, we see the condition of our heart determines the fruitfulness of our life. We all want our lives to matter, to have purpose, to bear fruit for God for eternity and to matter. But how do we get there? What, what, do, we, what do we do differently? How do we hear what we're supposed to hear? My mom back in Omaha, Nebraska, has a quote on her, on her uh, bulletin board that says, the same sun that melts butter hardens clay. And I never really understood that but this passage really kind of digs in and unpacks that. So we continue the story in Luke 8, 11, and it says the seed is the word of God. This is a huge concept in Luke. When we think of the word of God, we think the Bible that we have, and it absolutely is that. It's the entire scriptures, but it's also Jesus' message of salvation. It is this living word that Jesus has come to bring hope. People repent of their sins and put their faith in him, this is the word of God, the message that he is bringing, the king and his kingdom. And so it's both the living and the written word, this jam-packed idea that we see. And fruit is, is going to be a key part of this story. It's crucial to Jesus' teaching. In Matthew 7, 20, he says, you will recognize them by their fruits. He's saying, comparing the good and bad fruit. It's the mark of a true believer. In Galatians 5, Paul mentions the fruit of the spirits as love, Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. It involves bringing about a good for others and advancing the kingdom of God in a variety of ways in this world. And so what does this look like in our lives practically? What does this mean? And so over the next three verses, Jesus describes the three bad soils, which I have labeled fruit killers. They keep the fruit from bearing the goal of this, our lives is to have a fruitful life, and it keeps us from having that due to these fruit killers. And so as we do so, we begin our heart check for today. So we read on in Luke 8, 12. It says, The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so they may not believe and be saved. We see here a heart that is disinterested the first fruit killer. And this, they're just not really, they hear the word and they just kind of let it sit there. They don't do anything with it. It doesn't, it doesn't have any value in their lives. And we know that the devil is coming and he wants to take away our hope, take away Jesus from really taking root into our lives. And that's what's happening here. I can't help but think of someone that wears headphones too, too loud and they can't hear you, but you can hear every song that they're playing on their headphones and you go up and you try to get their attention and they kind of pull one ear off and they're like yeah what's up and you tell them and they put it back on and then nothing happens they may hear what you said but nothing really takes root into their lives and this reveals the truth that we see very clearly in this passage that if if we don't do something with God's word the devil will he wants to come and take away as the great deceiver take away what could, could give us hope and life and that's our heart is, the fruit is killed because of being disinterested to the word of God. The second we see in Luke 8, 13. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. 
But these have no root. They believe for a while and in a time of testing fall away. You know, perhaps this heart is maybe softer than the first heart, but, but ultimately it proves to be superficial. It was never real. It was kind of uh, this joy that they kind of received the word with initially is more of just like an emotional excitement, and then it's just going to pass away when something else comes. The, the true condition of the heart is revealed, and this is a heart that is it's distressed. It's characterized by being distressed. You know, when I think of, uh, I think of this, I think of Fairweather fans. You might know them for sports. I think of the Broncos. You know, it's really easy when they win games, they go to the Super Bowl, they win the Super Bowl, to just, you know, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Broncos fan. There's a million people downtown for this big parade. I would never say that because I grew up, my dad is a Packers fan and he's here today, so I can't, I can't do that. But um, I grew up in Nebraska, and so most people would just kind of pick their favorite sport team because we didn't have pro sports. And so people would make random connections, like my great aunt once lived in New England, so I'm a huge, you know, huge Patriots fan. And then the Broncos would beat the Patriots, and well, she moved, you know, she moved to Colorado, so now I like the Broncos. These random connections, um, a fair weather fan, it's not really real. It's not, it's just when the tough times come, when the losses come, it reveals a true heart. And what Jesus is talking about here is so much more important than sports. He's talking about our salvation, our very soul. And he wants committed, diehard followers. He doesn't, he doesn't say that this life is going to be easy. It's going to be hard. He says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And we think about it, if, if we build our house, Jesus is, another Jesus is teaching, we build our house on the sand. And when the storms come, not if, not if, the, the foundation proves to be shaky and the building collapses. And we see that the superficial heart has no root. And when those times come, they fall away. They fail to reach the goal of a fruitful life. And the last fruit killer we see is in 8.14. It said, and as for those what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. And their fruit does not mature. And if I'm honest with you today, this is the most difficult one for me. As I was reading through this summer, I came across this passage and kind of saved it on my desktop and kept coming back to it over and over. And then as Ryan and I began to talk about what I would be preaching on today, uh, I came back to this passage and it, primarily this. You know, these worldly desires, if this was true in Jesus' day, think how much more true it is today. We're bombarded on media telling us we have to be better, do more, have a better house, a bigger house, do more, travel farther. And it creates this, this unrest in us. We, have, we find that there's this emptiness and we try to fill it with quick things that give us a momentary pleasure. Think of sex and excess and more and more. We, we just find that this longing can, cannot be found in any of those things. It's only found in Jesus C.S. Lewis has a quote, and he says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased." We see here this distracted heart. 
The word of God offers us, the, the gospel of Jesus offers us so much more than what this world can offer us. An infinite joy, a holiday at sea that fills our heart and satisfies our soul. But if we're not careful, these worldly desires can creep in. And the second part of this is worry. Worldly desires and worry characterize this, this uh, soil. And this one is the most difficult for me personally. Uh, I struggle with worry a lot. And, I, and particularly uh, when Hannah and I first got married, we had a great wedding in Omaha, Nebraska. We went on a honeymoon. We had an opportunity to go to, to Cancun, Mexico. And we get to Mexico, and things are going well. And on day four, I get horribly sick. And you haven't eaten lunch yet, and I will spare you details, but I was laying on the bed, and I could not move. And my stomach was a mess. I'm supposed to be this big, strong guy who gets married, and I was, just, I was looking forward to this so much. And I'm laying on the bed, and I'm taken to a Cancun hospital. And in a crazy story, it just it was miserable. And we come home, and I, and I kind of got healed, we thought. My stomach kind of functioned better. I had some more energy. But something was wrong. And through that entire first year of marriage, I struggled so much. I would go to doctor after doctor, week after week. And my, some of my blood levels and some of my health levels were really low, and we didn't know why. And I would cry out to God, and I'd say, why? And I, and I just I wrestled with this. And I worried so much. I worried, what is this going to mean for our marriage? What is this going to mean for future kids? What is this going to mean for us? And so finally, I was up in school in Minnesota, and we had made an appointment with Mayo Clinic. So we, we went to the Mayo Clinic. It was the third time we had made an appointment. Uh, we had to cancel the first two to do various things. And so we kept this third appointment. And we go in with this third different doctor, and I sat down with my wife. And I looked at the doctor with tears in my eyes and I said, I just feel like we've had the hardest start to a marriage. I said, I feel like it's my fault. And uh, he looked back right at me and he said, uh, I would totally disagree. He said, you both are committed Christians and you have the hope of Jesus in your heart. And you're preparing for ministry and God is going to do great things. He said, do you believe that God can heal you. I said, yeah, I think so. <laughs> I mean, uh, I, I didn't, you know, Mayo Clinic, why is this guy talking to me like this? And he, and he says, do you worry a lot? And I was like, no, uh, yeah, I worry a lot. Uh, and and I, w I did, and it, it had taken over my heart. And this guy was a committed Christian. I, believe, I don't believe in coincidences. That guy was there for a reason. And he changed my perspective. And it's not like I just got magically healed and everything was fine. We still wrestled through some things, but a lot of those health levels have risen. And I'm functioning a lot better now. And you know, that doctor gave me a real-life heart check face-to-face. -face. How are you doing? How are you doing? And you know, we all struggle in some form or fashion, whether it's cancer, loss of a loved one, or maybe just the day-to-day -day struggle of trying to get your kids to school and trying to get everything in order quickly. And, we, and this, this worry, can, this, this what-if game can take over our hearts. Like, what's going to happen tomorrow? What are we going to do? And Jesus addresses, addresses this in Matthew 6. He teaches us not to worry about our lives. Because which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And that's conviction. I tell you, if you could add hours to your life through worrying, I would be living a very, very long time. But he finishes this, this passage and he says, Do not be anxious about tomorrow. 
For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Corey Tenboom, who uh, helped Jew- many Jews escape the Nazi Holocaust in World War II, said, Worrying is carrying tomorrow's load with today's strength, carrying two days at once. It's moving into tomorrow ahead of time. Worry doesn't empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. How true is that? And as we take a step back, I'd be willing to bet that most of us in here, this is the hardest soil, the hardest condition of our heart that we wrestle with. It's these worries, these worldly desires that can creep in. And so now we get to the point where we ask, well, what do we do about it? How can we have this fruitful life? How can we check the condition of our heart and move forward in a new trajectory? And the answer is found in the good soil in Luke 8, 15. And in this one verse, it is a powerful verse. It kind of goes back and shows each of the three fruit killers, disinterested, distressed, and distracted. And it gives gives a response to that and shows us the right way so that our lives can bear fruit. Let's read Luke 8, 15 together. As for that in the good soil, there are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. This is the goal of the seed. The goal of the word of God is to bear fruit. We need to continually hear the gospel, hear the good news, and let it define our lives, to hold it close to our hearts. Because the gospel, it doesn't only save us. The good news of Jesus does not only save us, it changes us. It changes the way we look at life. The condition of our heart determines the fruitfulness of our life. And so now in this fourth soil, let's dig in and get these three fruit bearers that we see. The first, we see that you hold it fast in an honest and good heart. And when I see this, I, I see value in the word of God. You see value in, the, in God's word and in what is written and given to us. You hold it fast. You're not letting go. You're not going to just let it sit there disinterested and the devil comes and takes it away. You say, no, this is my life. I need this. Psalm 1, 1 through 3 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, and it yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Delighting and meditating in this word of God. This is our hope. And when I think of that verse, and I think of this concept of seeing value in the word of God, I think of two people that are here in this congregation. And the first is the youth pastor, Josh Suddeth. And you got to hear him preach on Memorial Day. And he is a a man who has committed the books of the Bible to memory. He has stored it in his heart. I'm not just saying that because he's my supervisor. (laughs) I'm saying that because it's true. He knows it in his heart. And it changes the way he lives his life. He holds it dear. I had the pleasure this week of meeting with another man in this congregation. And he has committed his life. He leads Bible studies He teaches the word, and it changes his life. Everything he does, it just comes out of him. I asked to meet with him, and I'm hopeful to continue meeting with him, to be able to get this in my own life, to be able to see value in the word and hold it fast. And second, we see in Luke 8.15, that last part, bear fruit with patience. So another aspect of fruit bearers is they seek perseverance. This word patience can be translated patience, patient endurance, steadfastness, 
Perseverance, pushing through. Bearing fruit is not always an instant process. Sometimes it takes time. It'd be awesome if we just become a Christian and instantly we're holy and great and perfect. And that's not how it works. In our society, we love like the microwave. You put it in, boom, it's there. But sometimes we need to embrace the crock pot, right? It takes time. You don't put fruit, fruit in the crock pot, but it kind of works there. But so it's not an instant gratification. We have to see this bigger picture. But also beyond just and seeing bearing fruit in our life, we experience trials all the time. And in those times, we need to seek perseverance. In James 1, 2 through 4, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various tri- trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. How is this possible? I grew up, I kind of thought this verse was weird. Count it all joy when you face trials at many times. How is it even possible? And the reason is, is that we don't rejoice at the trials. We rejoice in the Lord who is sovereign over those trials. And we embrace the fact that the difficulties and the trials that we're going through, like my experience with Mayo, like an experience that you could have that is weighing on you today, is you rejoice that the Lord is sovereign over those trials. And that doesn't mean that you just that things are always just going to be peachy and and great. It could be really hard at times, and it could get really, really messy. But God is in control, and we have a God who cares and loves us. And there's a quote uh, from Evan Burns. It kind of put words in my mouth, and it really understood this concept. It says, sometimes the kingdom breaks in and people are healed, and sometimes God is glorified through suffering as people show that God is their all in all. And sometimes we don't know why some people get healed and some don't. Why some have just seemed to can't catch a break and some seem to have everything go well for them. But we know that both are an opportunity to bring glory to God. If you're suffering and it seems like you've been suffering for a long time, God is with you and God cares for you and you have an opportunity to be a huge witness for him in that. And if you're healed, that is awesome and it can show the power of God and to embrace that that life is not always easy and it's not always smooth, but God is with us. And so the question we have is, how am I trusting in God's provision today? Am I distressed or am I seeking perseverance in those tough times? And lastly, we see uh, the last fruit bearer is sustaining connection. The only way it's possible to bear fruit is to sustain connection with God. In John 15, 4 through 15, it says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Bearing fruit is only possible through cultivating and abiding in Jesus Christ and spending your time with him. And so I ask you today, is how am I abiding in God's presence? Am I distracted? Or am I seeking to sustain connection? And Dan Elliott said in the Psalms of Ascent series, he says, you can either worry or pray, but you can't do both at the same time. And how true that is to sustain connection. And so now as we come to the close, we can put it all together. We say, what, so we ask that question, what's the difference in hearing? How can we have this fruitful life? How can we check the condition of our heart? And it says, And we say, heart-deep hearing leads to fruit-bearing action. 
We put that all together. And Jesus reiterates this at the end of this sentence, this section in Luke 8, 21. My mother and brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. And back up in Luke 8, 1 through 3, we mentioned the presence of those women that was a little unusual. And they've become a huge part of Jesus' ministry. They are providing for him out of their own means. These are people that's the lowest possible outcast in society and one of the richest from the palace would have connections all over and be well known. And both of them left and followed Jesus with their whole life and were providing for him because they understood. They've become part of his family. Heart deep hearing leads to fruit bearing action. And the same is true for us. We have a new identity now as a child of God. We are part of Christ's family. We belong to him. And I want you to hear this clearly today. This is not a message of try harder and do more. Just try, try, and try. We saw that the gospel, when it takes root in our life, it doesn't just save us, it changes us. changes the way we are. Because left on our own, we don't really naturally bear fruit. D.A. Carson says, People do not drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. And that grace-driven effort is the key. It's not Billy-driven effort. It's not me just pulling my bootstraps up. I don't wear bootstraps. But pulling them up and trying harder and doing and trying and trying and trying. That's not what it is. That's the beauty of Christianity, of our faith. Every other religion is based on you try harder, you do more, you earn your salvation. And the beauty of Christianity is it says, Jesus, it says, it's done. Trust in me. And we put our faith in him on his work on the cross, we are now freed to live for him in our lives, to trust him. And what a, what a great, this is exciting. And, it's, and it's, it's just captured in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. It says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves, it's a gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. See, God has prepared us to do these good works and he's prepared us to live in a new way for him no matter where we do, no matter what our job is, no matter what sphere of influence that we have. We're saved, not saved by our works, we're saved for works. And what an awesome truth. Colossians 3.17, Paul says, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And you know, we will mess up. We will fall short. But as we sang this morning and as we understand. God knows the condition of our hearts. Back in August, it was the first time I had visited South, and I sat in my normal back left, back right section, and Ryan said these words that have stuck with me 13 months later. God pursues relentlessly. He loves always and refuses to give up on you. He refuses to give up on you, and that was the message that Sunday that I needed to hear, and that's the message I need to hear every single day. This is the God that we're invited into a relationship with. The God who created the entire world and yet he cares for you individually and specifically. He loves you. He knows every hair on your head. And so today, if you're struggling with this disinterested or distracted or distressed heart, know that God loves you and he's pursuing you. And when we see value in his word and we seek perseverance in trials and tough times and we sustain connection with him, our lives will bear fruit might not be instant, but it will happen. And so today, I just want to give us a chance for you to have a deep breath. In a moment, we're going to be into a time of communion. And I just want you to ask yourselves today, how is my heart? 
Let's pray.